Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is episode 136 of the show with Alice Fraser. She's a writer. She's a comedian. She's very, very clever. You can follow her on Twitter at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E, alliterative on Twitter. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for all the support that I've been getting on Patreon. You can uh, support the show by pledging a monthly amount, patreon.com slash osher. If you support for as little as five bucks a month, uh, you can get access to exclusive episodes. There's a new one of them coming soon. But if uh, you want to donate one off, that's fine. If you don't want to donate at all, that is also fine. I'm very just, I'm just grateful that you are here. Quick intro this week. As you know, I've been uh, transitioning from one set of meds to the other this week. Oh, this is your new show. Hi, I'm Osher. I'm the guy from the telly with the roses and the things, and uh, I live with a mental illness, and I talk about it on the show. So, hi, this is your new show, first episode. G'day. Here we are, talking about brains. Anyway, um, yeah, I've been transitioning from one set of meds to another, trying to do the balancing act of benefits to side effects, I'll call it that and yeah so we're currently in the phase of cutting down one set of meds and then lay fallow for a few days and then ramp up on the other one so uh i'll keep you posted for now though i'm just uh keeping busy trying to get on the bike as much as i can trying to eat well um feeling my feet been feeling my feet a lot lately and just you know little things like getting present to the smell of audrey's cologne i know that sounds weird but you know, it helps me get back in the room. 
Uh, thanks for all the messages that everyone sent me through this week. I do read every email you send me. I'll write back to most of them. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Since we've talked last, James Matheson has announced that he's going to run up against Tony Abbott in Warringah. If you're from out of the country, James, who I used to do Australian Idol with and Channel V with, is running up against our ex-Prime Minister in his home electorate, which is where James lives. And uh, I love him. I've always loved him. And people are just starting to see the kind of man that I always knew. Um, the smart, clever, compassionate, kind, love, and acceptance. James, uh, he did a fantastic job the other day on the Bolt Report, if you saw that. Just brilliant. Love and acceptance, man. Love and acceptance. It's going to be good. His episode's episode 100, if you want to get a clue as to what kind of guy he is. If you just think he's the bloke from the telly, you think again. So let me tell you about my guest today, Alice Fraser. She is a comedian, a writer, and an ex-lawyer from Australia. Uh, she's also host of the wonderfully cerebral podcast, Tea with Alice, which I'm very happy to say I have been a guest on. We actually recorded the episode that I was on of her show and this show on the same day. We basically just swapped memory cards out of my Zoom and away we went. We did hers first. Um, so if there's parts of this conversation that don't make sense, just pop back to that episode and you should uh, have a better idea and flesh a few things out. You should listen to her show anyway because it's, uh, it's pretty great. Alice has a very interesting story. She's a fascinating woman. She's very, very clever. And uh, her story, which I love, her story is about following what you believe in, in finding your truth, and what monetary, war, what monetary rewards balance up against that truth or even the joy of that journey. Um, the way she describes that is a really, really beautiful thing. If you like what you hear, let her know. She's on Twitter, alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E. That's where you can find her. Listen to her show. The Alice Fraser uh, podcast is called Tea with Alice. But enjoy this. Uh, cups of tea at my coffee table. Well, dining table, actually. Around the big furniture. The big kids' table with Alice Fraser. Hey, Alice. Hello, how are you? I'm all right. Fancy meeting you here. Fancy meeting you here. <laughs> um, so in the preamble, I would have told people what we just did. Yes. And I will point them in the direction of your show, uh, which I'm grateful for because it is such a very different conversation than the one we're about to have. Because it's about... Which is really nice. Not only because it's about you, but just also the way conversation takes place. So... Uh, Hopefully, it'll be a fantastic anthropological study for folks who listen to go, oh, this is what these two people sound like when they have this particular outcome in mind and then that particular outcome in mind. Depending on who has the reins of the conversation. Or, yeah, who, or not necessarily. Yeah, maybe the reins or what's the goal? You know, you what? sat down and said, like, oh, you know, what's a difficult idea at yeah. the start of your show and the way we went. That's um, true. But this is kind of different. Yeah. So we're in Sydney and yes. you're here as part of the Sydney Comedy Festival. Yes. Um, Sydney is originally my home. I've only lived in Melbourne for about eight months. So ah. okay. I, I, feel, I feel like this is coming home except that I'm only here for four days. Where did you grow up? Sydney. What so part? I grew up in uh, Rose Bay, Double Bay. Oh, right. So nearby. Yeah. It's funny when you go to Melbourne and people try to compare the two cities they say, oh, Melbourne's much easier and much better. And I initially had this super defensive reaction of like, no, Sydney's amazing. And I realised what I think of when I think of Sydney is the eastern suburbs of Sydney. 
which is amazing. Mm. And then Greater Sydney, you know, public transport gets difficult and it becomes more complicated and... Yeah, it's amazing because there's a harbour in the middle of it, but it's shitty to get around because there's a harbour in the middle of it. Yeah. Yeah, but then the harbour and the water means that you, in the middle of a city, have access to the wilderness. Yeah. The untamed wilderness. Yeah. Holy shit. It's like There's right nowhere there. like that. Yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty glorious. Um, but, yeah, then you get... What always fascinates me, and I'm, I remember this the first time I went to Europe, is that um, once you get, I don't know, 5Ks out of any city centre, it's just homogenous Western society suburbs. Mm. I mean, you could be anywhere in the world. You yeah, go to a that's shopping mall. never appealed to me no. as, as an end goal. I was, where was I? I was in the outskirts of Lyon in France. I was like, a shopping mall. I could be anywhere. It, could, it looked, smelled, smelled like cinnamon donuts and deep fried things. Capitalism. Everywhere. It's the same, same, same. You know, shopping mall, church, high school, suburbs, shopping mall, church, high school, suburbs. Just kept oh. going. Medical centre. Kept going, 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 going. And countryside eventually. And it's the same, I guess, in a westernised society. That's kind of the model. Well, if it's driven by sort of needs and desires. Yeah. Car repair place. Yeah, that we copy and paste that for all around the world. Um, but then you get to parts of the city like uh, Melbourne, for example. The parts of Melbourne that make Melbourne, Melbourne, Melbourne are glorious because you can't yeah. get them anywhere else in the world. Yeah. Same parts of Sydney that make Sydney, Sydney. Incredible. Impossible to replicate. Parts of Brisbane that make... Brisbane, Brisbane. Like, you can have an, an amazing house on the water, live in this beautiful kind of Federation-era home, or even Victorian-era home, right on the river, and you can be 15 minutes from the city. Yeah. And the jungle, everywhere. It's great. I love it. Did you go to school out here as well? I did, yeah, yeah. I went to uh, a languages school, international grammar, which when I was at it was at Redfern in the old Revlon factory. So I I knew without knowing it a lot of junkies when I was growing up. (laughs) Uh, Who was the first junkie you met? Well, there was a guy in the bushes in the out-of-bounds area and if you (laughs) dared somebody to go into the out-of-bounds area, you'd see this guy and he'd flash you and then you'd run back to the rest of the kids. How old were you? This is primary school, so young. And the teachers were cool with this? Well, no, not when they found out. He got ar- ar- arrested by... We had two constables who used to just hang out and they were our teacher's quote-unquote boyfriends and they would just occasionally, you know, tackle somebody in our playground and... Oh, so people realised there were, you know, dodgy... There was a couple of dodgy, Dodgy yeah. sex pests hiding in the bushes. Yeah. Let's just get Constable Barry coming... Uh, I think one... Yeah, the... That was the, that was that, and I didn't realize. Again, you don't realize that your childhood is weird until you grow up and realize that other people didn't. When have... you're that little, do you know that a grown man exposing himself to a little girl is a form of sexual violence? No, so you, you didn't feel weird in the tummy or anything. No. Wow. I never did it. I did, I oh. would always win. Um, <laughs> Truth or dare. Truth. Or, uh, usually, other games, sort of sporty games, but. All right. And if you lose, then you have to you go, have into to the go and look at the junkie's penis. <laughs> no, I don't want to play games with you in the schoolyard, Fraser. No. Uh, yeah, I think those things don't you don't strike they don't strike you as weird or unusual. They're not. They weren't super. They weren't sexualized because we, there was no relationship existing with that man. Is it a adults? penis is not inherently offensive or sexual? But there's something got to be weird and aggressive about a grown man. 
I don't know. I think he was probably a deeply troubled human being. Yeah. I don't even know if he was present in the situation. If he's not present in the situation, is it a sexual exploitation? Like, where well, was his brain? He's having a, he's I have no idea yeah, what his yeah, yeah. brain was doing. Yeah. And certainly for the kids who were involved, it wasn't – it was a game. It wasn't a situation that anybody – was being coerced into or Did being sexualised. Like I, I have no time? idea. I, I, I just remember it very clearly, sort of people running into the bushes and running out screaming and giggling. Oh! Um, but that was, yeah. And it was I don't, the International Language School? Is that what you IGS, said? International Grammar School. And, oh. So, and so what happens there? Music and languages. So uh-huh. you learn music and uh, musical instrument is important to learn and then two languages. And, what and was you your, do them for an hour or so a day. Uh, German and Italian. And the flute? Oh, the violin and the piano. Oh, because one's not enough. No. Violin <laughs> one's never enough. Yeah, no one's ever really going to go out. It's not just going to say, you know, oboe. The two least cool instruments, yeah. I think. I'm going to go double reed. First go, I'm going to go double reed. Double. My brother played the cello, which I was sort of jealous about. No one says dulcimer, do they? Hammer dulcimer. My mum used to play the hammer dulcimer. Well, as as your instrument, you know. Oh no! Yeah, she she played lots of instruments. Yeah, well, that's super all cool. of the instruments. So your house was full of music. Full of music and instruments until we were about seven or eight when she stopped being able to play them. But then the instruments were still there. What was the more interesting instruments that you had? So uh, hammer dulcimer is pretty cool. Not hammer many people have a hammer dulcimer. If you don't cool. know what it is, it's basically uh, it's a string stringed instrument. And uh, the, 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 the musical notes are played by um, striking a, uh, a, a string under tension. And the way they're arranged is very beautiful. And uh, sometimes you see people with multiple hammers yeah. so they can get harmonies. So you imagine, imagine if you open up a grand piano and look at the strings. It's sort of like a small version mm. of that. Well, a piano makes a sound by a, a hammer hitting a string anyway, but this yeah. is basically taking the mechanics out of it. Yeah, and doing it by doing hand. Doing it by hand. Which is, and it's a beautiful sounding. It's a sounding really thing. lovely yeah. instrument. Well, uh, we had a spinet in our house, which is a oh, single manual harpsichord. That is yeah. a very, uh, very Pride and Prejudice sort of drawing bar- room. Baroquean, yeah, very. Dad was right into it, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, we had mum had a, a accordion squeeze box, mm-hmm. um, penny whistles, many penny whistles. Uh, she played the banjo and uh, all sorts of just any kind of instrument she could play it and would play it. So lullabies, banjo accompaniment? Uh, no, just singing. Just just oh. lullabies always have to be. I think just voice. I think my dad would. Lullabies are an acapella. Yeah. Well, dad would sing to us, but it was all in Czech. Ah. Uh, lullabies he knew were in Czech so he had a chromatic harmonica that he taught himself to play and he taught himself to play spinet as well but he had a he had a chromatic harmonica that he would um, uh, basically play the the melodies of the Czech folk songs to help us go to sleep oh wow yeah mum and dad would sing harmonies sometimes of course they did of course they did but uh, Czech is a lucky my dad's side of the family is Hungarian Czech oh there you go yeah the Russians uh, had a bit of a hand in both of those uh both those places. Yeah. <laughs> so your folks, uh, did they meet in Australia? Where did they meet? They did. They met at university. Um, so that's nice. That is nice. It's a nice. It's a nice thing. And apparently, apparently, they were at a party and they'd met each other and had cups of tea before and liked each other. Uh, and then Dad said, "Oh, can I get 
your number and mum, he held out his wrist and mum had a pen and she wrote it on the inside cuff of his coat. Nice. <laughs> and he thought, oh, she wants me that's to remember that. Yeah, it's a, that's, a, that's a statement of intent. Yeah. Mum argued afterwards that it wasn't. She just thought that was what he was suggesting. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know. Your dad uh, and mum grew up in Australia? Yes, so Dad's a first-generation Australian. His uh-huh. parents were both uh, immigrants. They met here at Redleaf Pool. So my grandmother was a Hungarian Holocaust survivor and came out and worked in a shoe factory, and my grandfather was a, a Czechoslovakian Holocaust survivor, and he was a human rights lawyer and then later became a sort of a businessman, and they met at Redleaf Pool. Wow. And uh, got together. It's a heck of a thing to be the son or daughter of a holocaust survivor my ex-wife's israeli and it's a it's a country full of traumatized people and their children epigenetic Col- uh, survivor syndrome is called yeah yeah there's people a lot hiding of damage food under the bed and stuff like that there's all sorts of different i mean statistically i'm more likely to have things like anxiety and eating disorders because of that <laughs> <laughs> and 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 that, that stuff is in the blood in a very strong and strange yeah. way. I don't know how much it would have affected my dad had he not become Buddhist later oh. on. But Did your father ever speak about his parents talking to him about what happened? Uh, Granny didn't talk about it a lot. My father's father died when he was seven. Um, was he driven to find out about it? Yeah, I think it. I think you all, they all are. I mean, my grandmother had one of those sort of... Anyone who got out has these amazing stories and she'd tell them sometimes, but it was mainly friends of hers who would tell Dad or tell us. They'd, you know, corner us sometime in the, after a dinner or something and say, you know, your grandmother's a hero, she did this or... What did she do? All sorts of things. She uh, disguised herself as a postwoman Christian postwoman for a period of time and she would go and sell bread into the ghettos for money, pretending that money was worth... She pretended to be an idiot and she pretended that she thought money was worth anything <laughs> compared with bread. And and she uh, she was being at one point taken to the camps but put bread under her eyelids to mimic the symptoms of conjunctivitis um, because the Nazis were weird in that way. They wouldn't kill you if you were sick wouldn't send you on a death march unless you were fit to go. Uh, and, and she rescued... There's sort of a lot of stories where she rescued her friends and there's bits of those stories that are elided and I never know how true they are or mm. how much... You know, how much to read into the sentence, for example, we acquired a Nazi uniform. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like... Yeah. You don't, you don't know what the story in that story is. I'm always interested in how you can tell stories the same story in so many different ways depending on what you focus on. Have you been over to Europe and had a look at some of that stuff? I have never been to Hungary uh, but I've been around Europe I've been to Germany and I've seen some of the you know, the things there which are quite confronting Yeah, Yeah, I've been to a camp Pretty horrifying Yeah, When you look at the and you know people make a lot of noise about what's happening in uh, Iraq at the mm. moment, the brutality of, of what's happening, it doesn't hold a candle to the mechanised, systematic, extraordinarily efficient slaughter by educated Christian people yeah. of 
educated Jewish people in a modern capitalist society. Yeah. Less than 75 years ago. Bananas. And then you think how can people, how could people have ignored that or turned a blind eye to it? Or, mm. And then you see on a small scale what's happening with our refugees. Mm. And people know that those conditions are horrific. Mm. I mean, not to the same degree. We're not burning people in ovens, but inhumane conditions. And people sort of fret about it a little bit, but mainly don't think about it at all. Mm. That's terrifying. Yeah. And you just see it in, in people. So how did your father find Buddhism? He was a... So he went through university, was a philosophy lecturer, uh-huh. a truth seeker, looking for the truth, and, and found nothing in philosophy that sort of held more than, you know, going back to basic principles, everything sort of requires a certain element of faith or belief, and then encountered Buddhism, and for him it was the first thing that uh, didn't require faith or abdication of of intellectual capacity. It was something that, you know, you had to experience, but it w- wasn't asking you to pretend you were experiencing it or to, to um, suspend disbelief in any way. And he found it really good and useful and sort of locked into that and became, as many converts to anything do, just the most Buddhist. And he was going out with mum and uh, she started meditating as well. And then she was diagnosed with MS. And then... Before they were married? Before they were married. Then they got pregnant with us and then they were married. So, uh, yeah, they decided to get married and have children after she was diagnosed, which I think is a pretty brave move. Beautiful thing. They didn't know what would happen. I mean, MS at that point was a completely unknown quantity. Mid-70s? It was the early 80s, yeah. So they didn't know what was going to happen or how long it was going to take or which bits it would take. MS takes chunks. Don't know what goes next. Some people lose... Friend of mine died. Yeah, Yeah. it's nasty. Uh, But among other things... um, getting pregnant slows down the disease. Mm. So I was a prescription baby. (laughs) My twin brother and I uh, were, yeah, they decided to have us and see what happened, if if nothing else, because it was going to get harder. Yeah. To have children look after children. Yeah. And she was pretty good until, I mean, she had a lot of sleep. She napped a lot and she didn't like loud noises. But other than that, just normal, good, excellent mum until we were about 10, which and I think is enough, you know. That's, so, okay, so on one that's hand, all you need. On one hand, you've got a dad who's, like, did your dad ever talk about the Holocaust? No, not really. I mean, he didn't like to talk about it other than to sort of say you should learn about it yeah. but don't go too deep right? because there are people who, I mean, Australian comedian Sandy Gutmann. Yeah. Uh, He's been on the show. Case. He can't get his head out of it. No. His whole life has been sublimated yeah. in just the horror, and it is horrible. If you yeah. think about it too much, you can't not think about it. Yeah. And there's bits of it that control my life even now where I'll – it's a dumb thing, thought experiment that I run whenever I meet a new person or I make a new friend. Just think, well, would you have been a Nazi? And if you don't have to look – too far. I mean, good on them being so uh, stringent in their documentation of what was going on. 
just shamelessly. It's like, yeah, well, in fact, we'll film everything. Yeah, and we'll take really, really good photos of everyone and everything. Good notes. Yeah, really good notes. Um, I mean, it's the serial killer you want to find if you're yeah, you a don't, police constable. Goodness gracious me. Yeah, and, you know, when you think about, you know, the initial allies' reactions, there's a story of, um, I don't know if it was Auschwitz. It's probably not. It's probably um, Bergen. Birkenau. Birkenau. The Allies roll in and they saw what was happening. You know, they saw this just like walking dead, uh, literally, people. Um, and there's a story of uh, they lined all the officers up against the wall and nobody gave the command. But the Americans just executed a lot of them. They were just so... Horrified. Horrified. And I mean, I want to I wanna weep, you know, they just... There was no trial. I mean, essentially, it's a war crime. But these guys were just like, "We cannot believe you have done this." In fact, this, and just that, just like that, the justice—that what well, they thought was justice. But yeah, it's, it's arguable. Justice is a slippery concept. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry to harp on about it, but you know, no. I just don't really meet many people who've had, you know, that. Family. I mean, it like shapes I told you, your idea of the in world. In America, it's different. There's obviously because of the diaspora, you, you meet a lot more um, people who are survivors and sons and daughters of survivors. And certainly in Israel, like I said, Heaps. I mean, my ex mother in law, she was born in Auschwitz. Wow. Yeah, she was born there. Yeah, she was a baby when they were liberated, but she was born there. Wow. That's horrifying. Yeah. It's full on, right? And, and then when I meet people who don't know what it is or. When I meet people who, oh yeah, but that was a long time ago. Like, it wasn't uneducated people. It was the best ideas of the smartest minds of the most brilliant people at the time that came up with this. Yeah, and you think about the time at which it happened as well, coming out of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, coming out of 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 the the revolution of kind of libertarianism that was happening in Berlin at the time Mm. in the cabaret clubs. How could that be happening at the same time as this resentment and rage was building in people against... Well, everything. Everything. But let's scapegoat this lot. Yeah, let's pin it on the Jews. Yeah. Full on. Sorry, that got heavy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you... You were brought up Buddhist? I was brought up Buddhist, so that's my upbringing. I guess it's my frame for the world. Do you have a shrine in the house, that kind of thing? Uh, in my parents' house, yeah. In my dad's house, there is a meditation room. So cool. Uh, yeah, it's good, I think. I'd, again, it's very hard to reflect on those things. The only way that I kind of can contextualise it for somebody who wasn't doesn't have the same experience as me uh, is the first time I went to an art gallery and was old enough to register it properly and realised all of the kind of Christian religious iconography was of a piece and realised how brutal it all is. Yeah. I have been in a Catholic church. I obviously, you know, went to their schools and I went there. But the last time I went to one, I can't remember what I was there for. Uh, It wasn't a wedding. Or was it? I can't remember. Anyway, I was in there. I was, no, it was a christening. It was a christening. And there's this 12-foot-high statue of a horrific, torturous murder happening. 
And then the, all the all the saints and the martyrs around the site holding their you know b- dismembered boobs on plates or eyes or you know <laughs> arrows through them, yeah. like suffering and this yeah. this fetishization of suffering as a as a means of worship yeah. was completely alien to me. Yeah, it would like have been weird. The idea that there's a virtue to sacrifice in that way in Buddhism, sort of death or or, or sacrifice is always a, a pragmatic thing. It's not a, it's not a noble thing. It's the, I mean, maybe it's noble, but it's not, it's not this sort of wallowing in pain thing. Yeah, that struck me as so. And I don't, I don't think that permeates modern Christianity or the idea of modern Christianity as much as it seems to in the religious iconography. But it struck me so hard as like, whoa, this is really intense. Did you have a hard time explaining to your friends at school? Well, IGS, which was this, uh, right. it was um, lots of kids of, from different cultures, lots of different languages, lots of different people. So yeah. that was okay. Everyone was different. There was seven different languages there and you could... Okay. We had a diff- lot of multiculturalism, which is weird, less popular now, multiculturalism as a, as a philosophy. This idea that you go and you eat the food and you wear the clothes and you experience the thing, that's seen as appropriative or upsetting in some way, which is weird to me because the clothes of Buddhist Burmese, Burmese Buddhism is the strain of Buddhism that I was brought up in. Those are my clothes that I grew up with. So it feels weird to me when I see somebody who's, who doesn't look like they should be wearing the clothes that they're wearing and immediately get piled on as a trivialising or appropriating or ruining somebody else's Like, a, like an integrity. Indian chief eagle headdress at Coachella. I mean, <laughs> I think that's slightly different because there's religious significance in that. Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, and I would probably find it... I'd understand more if somebody's super offended by that in the same way as I'd understand if somebody was incredibly offended by somebody dressing up as a nun for pornography or uh, I found it confronting someone had a comedy show about being a Buddhist monk and he was walking around in the robes of a Buddhist monk. I found that very upsetting because the symbolism of that is... But he wasn't a monk. He wasn't a monk. I found it upsetting on a sort of a visceral thing because it's a very serious thing to be. Mm. So I was like, oh, a bit... mm." What's the difference between... Buddhism, like Burmese Buddhism v uh, Tibetan Buddhism. A huge difference. As many differences as there are between Christianity and Judaism, despite yeah. ostensibly having the same God. Shh. <laughs> don't tell anyone Jesus was Jewish. Shh. shh. Don't. He was a rabbi. They don't like it. He was a rabbi. He was. He was a- I've been to the temple. I've stood on the steps. He would have walked up to say, hey, stop with the selling stuff on church day. Yeah. I stood there. That's he, nice. Yes. He was. He was Jew, but I don't really like that. I don't really like to know that. It's a weird history a, revisionism stuff. It's is wild, right? Super weird. Yeah, there's heaps of different strains of Buddhism. Yeah, so what's it, the main differences? Uh, the main division, I think, you'd, between Mahayana and Theravada Buddhism is the main sort of division. And Mahayana is sort of broad path. The, and that includes all sort of Buddhist-ish things, uh, all the way out to sort of yogic practices and things, things that are interpretive. Uh, things that are sort of uh, evolving and and uh, adaptive. Theravada Buddhism is the is 
well, I guess you'd call it closer to stricter or fundamentalism in that it doesn't depart from the original teachings and it, it takes, it always calls back to the original teachings. It's less, um, less secondary discourses, less sort of, so, you know, Zen Buddhism is based on one particular discourse of the Buddha, whereas Theravada Buddhism is all, you know, taking it all as a, all of the teachings, but only the teachings rather than any sort of departures. So uh, if if you, I don't know, you can imagine I was, I was brought up in as close to fundamentalism as you get with Buddhism. Right, which is, right. Which is, as I said, not a faith-based religion. So it's difficult to get real fundamentalist. Yeah, but it, it can be just, I guess you'd call it a strict, strict practice. Strict practice, I think. So no meat-eating and that kind of thing. Uh no meat getting. No meat getting. Oh. The the meat itself is not the problem. It's the killing of the it's meat. The killing. So the four elements of taking life are that you have to know it's a being is sentient, that you have to want to kill it, that you have to take action to kill it, and that it has to die. Those are the four component parts of the wrong act of taking life. So uh, I will eat meat if I think it's going to be thrown away, genuinely. Not like, oh, are you going to... Genuinely. Not like my brother's friend who used to come over and be like, can I have a chicken, lettuce and tomato sandwich because he was kosher and not allowed to eat bacon. Genuinely, if I think it's going to go to waste. I have no problem with the substance. It's a just matter. It's just atoms in a particular arrangement. But I won't... I don't particularly want to have to think about where I am in the causal chain of an animal's death in the light of a commercialised factory farming. Like, fuck, I, don't, I just don't want to have to figure out that. Yeah. In a, unless, so I don't, I don't, I tend not to eat meat. Uh, right. That's a general rule because of that. When was the first time as a kid you realised that, oh, wow, th- this is what I thought was the world it was as we kids it's fine our parents are our gods and you know the world they create for us is the world we live in and everyone else is a bit different for a while but then you realize maybe i'm the one that's not i'm the weird freak yeah i got bullied a lot oh um but i at high school by this point yeah both both primary school primary school was easier because i had my twin brother and we Mm. got bullied together and that doesn't matter so much for the flasher in the bushes if they've gone up so much (laughs) uh we, we we looked after each other there. High school, I went to an all girls school. It was a, it was a jungle of, you know, social experimentation on one another. In which I, I didn't n- navigate particularly well. Mm. I was a weird kid. I yeah. really was. I'm a weird adult, but it, it's fine now. Now I get. I get points for being the weird that I am, but I didn't then. At what point did you... And so what did you do instead? Like, I went to the library and read. About? Horrible fantasy novels mainly, but anything, everything. I mean, from about year eight, which was the time at which I was sort of cut out of the herd, um... I was too proud to try and elbow my way back in from the bottom. I, and so I just would go to the library in. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? 
Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com during class outside of class during lunchtime just read books in the corner escape 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 did they let you eat in the library uh no they didn't let me eat in the library i would usually eat on the way to or from school uh yeah Eating was a weird thing at that time for us because mum couldn't really cook or she was getting to the point where she couldn't. She'd uh-huh. sort of burn things more often than not. And so we were sort of learning to cook for ourselves or for the family yeah. about 11, 12. That was when we were trying to figure it out. And, yeah, there's sort of vaguely complicated stuff about food, I think, culturally different between mum and dad the the anglo just have a sandwich dear and the jewish hungarian eat 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 and so food as love or not was a sort of a fraught issue what would you want people listening to know what would you want them to know about uh what it is to be a kid with a parent that's got a terminal illness Who? What, what would I want who to know, I guess? People who are listening. Who might, don't know what it's Who don't like. know what it's like. I'd want them to see my last show, Savage. Because <laughs> that's, that's what that was. Yeah. That was that... That... I mean, there's a couple of things. But just... That... You... You think that the person who you are with is all of their component parts. But it's amazing how much you can take away from a person and still love them as that person and still have them be that person to you when all of the sort of identifying features that were so important to them in their identity or so important to you in their identity are gone. So I think a good example of that is um, initiation function. So that's the ability to do what you want to do. So pick up this coffee cup. Uh, so in my teen years, we noticed, like, mum would say she'd go to get milk and she wouldn't get milk. Or she'd say she was going to do something and she wouldn't. And that is annoying. And you think of that as a personality trait, your ability as a person to get things done. I'm the kind of person who gets things done or is the kind of person who doesn't get things done. It wasn't until a little bit later when she had another brain scan and we realised that that was a part of the brain that was damaged. So she couldn't do things and it got worse over time to the point where it was not getting milk it was picking up the coffee cup that was directly in front of her and you could see that she wanted to get it but she couldn't get it and I think I had it quite easy because mum was very calm about it all she was sort of frustrated and upset by it at various points but she'd sort of the worst thing she ever really said was like oh dear and that was when, you know, she had a tumour that was exploding out of her stomach. Like, oh, it was fuck me. just, she was very, very stoic and very 
yeah. just dealt with it very practically. Yeah. So I think it was easier for us and also that we were all a family and we looked after each other. Easier than it could have been. Yeah. But horrible. So what you're saying, just so I hear you right, that the, the kid who's in that situation is trying to deal with... Uh, is loving someone not in the way that you loved your mum or you loved your dad. They're loving them for the the peace of that person, that human that makes them who they are. doesn't really matter if they can't do this or that or this or that or this or that. Yeah, but that, that you are, I guess, just coming to terms with death and loss in chunks Yeah. rather than all at once, very suddenly yeah. you... I think my whole teenage years were a process of grieving. Yeah, the preemptive grief. Bits of my mum that had been, you know, she, that she couldn't play her instruments anymore, that she kept wanting to write things but wasn't able to complete them, that, yeah. you know, she wanted to go out but she couldn't go out or she wanted to, you know, things like not. Yeah. Not being the kind of person that can go out in public and be sure that you won't wet yourself or... Yeah. You know, those things that you think of as integral to your humanity are not at all important. They're not the bits that make you a person. They are things that are sad to lose, though. I don't know. I don't know if it's better or worse to be able to lose someone over 30 years or over one night. I'm going to, I'm going to say, I'll take the slow burn. I'll take the slow burn. I'll take the slow burn before it allows me to, uh, I'll take the pain that goes with it at the benefit of having the time to process, make adjustments, process, make adjustments, process, make adjustments. When my mum died, I could honestly say I never said anything cruel or mean to her. I never... The only thing I ever regretted was running away to New York for a year, just and that was just running away. After she had her first psychotic episode, I was like, oh, I've got to go, because they said it would happen again, but they didn't know when. I thought, now, you know, I have to go now. How old were you? I was 25. Right. And what were you in the middle of at the time? Uh, I just finished my degree. I just finished my master's degree at Cambridge. Cambridge University in the UK in the UK yeah oh wow how does a kid from Rose Bay get to Cambridge uh, by being incredibly smart <laughs> yeah right answer <laughs> no I was just a big English nerd yeah um, and I yeah applied. you were all playing you know go and look at the flashing man and the pants in the yard and I was reading books and look what happened to me <laughs> I uh, yeah I was just a big big reader of yeah. books and I've always been good on words. At what point did you realise that that was within your grasp to go to a university like that? I didn't really. Someone said the application process was due that day and <laughs> I was at the university and I uh, walked into my supervisor's office, my honours supervisor, and I said, can you write me a letter of recommendation? And then I went to athletics training and, and I said to my coach, can you write me a letter of recommendation? And he said, sure. And then I put them in the envelope on my way home after athletics training and stuck them in the post box and then went back to finish my law degree, which I really didn't want to do. Uh, and uh, 
then I got the letter in the mail at home and I read it and they said, oh, you know, you're, you've been accepted pended, pending uh, funding. And then the next letter in the pile was, you've been given this Commonwealth scholarship. And I walked out the door and I went on the bus. I caught the bus to university from uh, that point, Double Bay to Sydney University. And I walked up to the law faculty and I, I said, hey, can I suspend my candidature for the next year or so and they said oh why you need to have a good reason I said I just got into Cambridge and I showed them the letter and they said okay that's a good reason and then because that was the third condition you had to not be going to any other university Uh, and then I called my brother on my little Nokia phone uh, and I said I I just got into Cambridge and then I realized I wasn't wearing shoes (laughs) 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 so yeah, it was a good moment. It was good. That's it was great. a good moment in my life. A buddy of mine studied it. He was a research fellow at Cambridge and I went up there to visit him. It's freaking amazing. It is like living in a book. Stood there and he goes, see that window there? I said, yeah. So that's Isaac Newton's office. Yeah. That's where he worked on his theories of gravity. Yeah. <laughs> he physics. was... He was a maniac. He used to he put spoons in his eye to try and distort the lens so he could figure out how light worked. Yeah, well, it was the Tim Ferriss of his day. Complete, complete madness. What, was, yeah. it, what was it like? I mean, was, did you see Stephen Hawking rolling around and that kind of thing? <laughs> I was, uh, did you hear that Stephen Hawking got a got pennying banned at, at the college that he's an honorary fellow at? Uh, pennying is the process of throwing a penny into somebody's drink and they have to drink the drink before the queen drowns. Um, but someone pennied his drink at a at a formal function and he took it as an insult and kicked up a fuss, tried to get the kid kicked out of university. didn't work. But then he also had pennying banned at that college for 100 years, which right. is pretty good. Wow. Yeah. One of the colleges doesn't have a boat shed uh, named after them because they had their boat shed shut down because for a hundred years because somebody attached a sword to the front of the boat during bumps and some What's someone bumps? got stabbed. So because the river is really narrow in it's Cambridge, it's not yeah. a wide river. In order to do races, you can't have side by side races. So what you have is these races where you're lined up, and the idea is to bump slash overtake the boat in front of you, which is you bring your your Bow in front of their stern. stern. So someone attached a a sword to the to the bow and uh, stabbed a coxswain. Stabbed a coxswain, and then that whole college. Hundred years. Hundred years. It's very epic. Pete took me to a pub that had. You probably know the name of it. He took me to a pub that had um, all the World War Two bomber pilots use cigarette lighters and put their names in the ceiling, burnt with cigarette lighters. Yeah. That was wild because there was an airfield nearby where they. You know, pop over the ditch, drop a few bombs on Jerry, and be home for D and medals by six. Exactly, it's such a, it's such a, so laden with history, almost overwhelmingly. Like everything you look at, you're like, that's a nice pond. Byron used to swim there. (laughs) (laughs) And that square where they would meet for duels. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. There's still a bridge. Uh, The only place in England that's still legal to have a duel is on the bridge between King's College uh, and King's College lawns. Meadows. What was what was that time like? Like, were you meeting people? Like, like was, that. was was romance a part of your life at that point? 
sort of, I, <laughs> in a very tame way because it was the first time that I had had no responsibilities. It's the first time I didn't have to look after anybody but myself. So going wild for me was like, I can stay out as late as I want. I can bring people over with no qualm at any time of day or night. I can have tea with people. I can, you know, it's just very nerdy thing. And I think I went through the whole of the teenage process of relationships in a year, which I wasn't even up to kind of genuine relationships or having sex with anyone. I just did that thing where you just get punched in the face by incredibly painful crushes you're just like oh my god he's amazing and like you can just i just did the whole of teenage development in a year and a half um which hurt you know emotionally um because everyone else was an adult at that time and i wasn't in that part of my mm. i wasn't in that part of did my did you find anyone myself. trying to take advantage of you in that situation, in naivety? There was one German guy who did this thing where I think it must have been an early version of negging oh, where he yeah. would give me these w weird sort of compliment insults. Uh, and I think, again, I was probably even too naive to, to fall for it. I just was like, he's weird. That's rude. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think I was sort of protected by my naivety. Yeah. It was it was an exciting and overwhelming period. What was it like coming life. back to Sydney after that? Hard. Hard. Partly because my friends in the comedy scene here, or the I wasn't in comedy explicitly. I was in the reviews and improv stuff. I wasn't doing stand up yet. But the people who I'd thought were very close to me didn't welcome me back with open arms which was a weird feeling. I mm. felt like gaps had closed or something like that. Um, and that was a, a strange thing. Uh, and it was hard to sort of slot back into family life and to those responsibilities and to yeah. the, co the combination of, of responsibility and um, what happens when you get a lot of responsibility very early or is, when you're a child and you have these adult responsibilities is you never transition, right? You don't you don't go through the teenage rebellion where you fight mm. with your parents that they see you as a real human being. You come back. I'm imagining at this, but as a kid, you would have been providing your mum a fairly high level of care. Yeah. Yeah. And so those th you get this parallel sort of overdevelopment and then that other part of your identity is completely underdeveloped. Have you come into sync uh, at all? Uh, I think so. I think, you know, having gone away a couple of times and come back... It's mainly dad has eventually come to terms with the fact that I'm a grown-up ah. person. Yeah. He still doesn't like to hear me swear, though, so... Oh. He says, people don't yet like to see young ladies swear. <laughs> say, by people, you mean you. By young ladies, you mean me. <laughs> I think swearing is clever and funny. Uh, a university study recently proved that people who swear are smarter. There you go. Yeah. Is it just more extensive vocabulary or...? Uh, it's a, it's, it is a way of uh, looking for uh, – I can't remember it now. Sorry, I've been up forever. But I like to fuck with people on the radio by, um, you know, bringing fairly mundane ideas but that have been proven by university studies, uh, peer-reviewed journal-published studies 
Um, and that was one of them. That was one of them. That swearing is that Swearing clever. makes you smarter. I like that. I'll have to find it. I'll send it to you. I'll send it to you. I think, I think swearing is great. It's fantastic. It gives you a, a whole other level of emphasis. Yeah. The C do. word particularly. Which one? The C word. Oh, it's glorious. I love it. I don't know if I can say it on your podcast. No, I say it all the time. I'm actually coming up against this because my dad wants to see the show on Saturday night. Yeah. And I've got a song where I say it's about, you know, don't trust your gut, don't trust your heart, don't trust your cunt, uh, don't trust the government, don't trust feminism. Um, but I don't know what I'm going to do. Because I make jokes when I, when I, I do a little bit of a disclaimer before. I say, hey who's okay with the word and who isn't and, you know, I'll tell you when to block your ears and that and, of course, the night my dad comes, I won't sing that word, I'll make a different word but it will be less funny because that's a fact. It's just a better word. I All the other words for vagina are you, weak and flaccid. I you to have that conversation with your dad from the stage. Right, sure. I implore you to say, <laughs> Dad, I love you and this thing that I do, that is what I love, I stand on stage <laughs> and I make people laugh and people pay me money to come and do this, Dad... Uh, I make them laugh because I say this word. Yeah. And they're all cool with it. And everybody, my father's never heard me say this word. And you're about to hear me say it to him for the first time. It'll be the greatest freaking moment you could possibly give that audience. <laughs> It'll be amazing. I've had other nights. My dad is supportive. He comes and sees my comedy. Uh, but he just doesn't like the swearing. And I, do, I still do it. I'll cut a few ones out. It's, it's good because I know which ones are necessary and which ones aren't. Yeah. I do love a good... Um, I, and thankfully, Audrey pulled me up about it. Uh, Audrey was like, she's like, a lot of your swearing is very, you know, it's, you know, bitches and motherfucker and cunt and very women. But like, yeah, you're right. Sorry. I have to figure that out. I have to sort that out. So um, I'm trying to, I'm working with cousin fucker lately. It's ah, a pretty good one. That's a good one. Because it's like. I mean, you go to like other, other languages have some really good, like they? Arabic swears. Amazing <laughs> combination curses. of family, sex and and animals. blasphemy and yeah. animals. Yeah. Ama- my dick on your god is one of them. Oh my goodness! Yeah, like uh, how do my you dick on, on your, your god? god. <laughs> or the sound of the wind through the flaps of your sister's cunt is another one. The sound of the wind. I bet if anyone speaks Arabic, please. I want to know how to say that. I want to know how to say that. They're this, and they're good. They're good visceral ones. Yeah, I'm sure the consonants are just really chewy yeah. too. I think that's the favorite, my favourite part about swear words is how chewy they are. Well, my granny could swear in Hungarian Bless her. for two minutes without repeating herself or stopping. My grandmother does exactly the same thing. In Czech, looks like a And there was something else about that. There was something, there's a really heavy religious ones. Uh, the one that granny, she started her, her, like the start of it was always, Basta mezulisht and lofesa shegete which apparently has something to do with a horse's penis. <laughs> I don't know. And a kid. Amazing, amazing. So good. Yeah. Fuck, can't. It's really not that. It doesn't it's hold weak. a candle. You want the old school, like, you know. Yeah. The, the, the sound of the wind through the flaps of your <laughs> Like, so good. That is so good, man. Oh. Well, it's like your brother is your uncle or something. Oh. Yeah. Oh, your brother's your father. So that kind of thing. Your all of the brother's ones, your the, the ones that are like... Your brother's your father means he fucked your mum. Yeah. Which, there's all sorts of... 
complicated. That is an Arabic one? Yeah. Damn. There's sort of complicated family ones. Uh, We've really got to pull Arabic our socks up. Good. We do, just like things. Yeah. Maybe, you should, pref- maybe you should preface the song with this elaborate. is nowhere near as good as some Arabic ones. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't know what I'm actually going to do on the night. I'll have to play it by ear. Who was the. So you didn't want to do a law degree. You go to Cambridge. I did, they you, went to Cambridge, then came back and finished my law degree. Okay, so you come back armed to the teeth with all of the law degree, every degree anyone could ever want as far as, okay, workplace, take me now. Yes. So what happened? I finished my law degree, um, went to America for a year, worked at the Swiss bank UBS and hated it, then came back slightly depressed um, and then uh, started work at a big law firm here in Sydney and worked there for a year and a day. Uh, by that time, I'm doing stand-up at nights. So I started stand-up properly when I was in New York. Um, and just every, I mean, every paycheck that I ever got, I'd look at and think, what would I buy with this money? And the answer was always and invariably, I would buy that time back. Wow. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like You really are Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. So yeah. now I have no money. Uh, but I think of it as money well spent. The money that I don't have is money I have spent on the time I have. Mm. Such a luxury. Time. I mean, we live in such a privileged society. I'm not going to starve to death. Uh, if I get sick, I'll be okay. Yeah. But the I, TV is blaring at me to buy all these things because clearly I'm not happy if I don't have the new thing. I wear the same thing every day. Yeah. Literally, I pick one thing and I'll wear it for about three months. I have two of these. Do you launder it every night? Uh, I have two of these, so I switch them over. And then I'll pick something else. But I just don't have to think about it, which is good. I get more brain space. Um, Efficient. Is there a a, a Buddhist vow of poverty vibe going on? No. I like... I think I just have a... I'm lucky. I have a good setup in my... Not good, even. I don't think it's a... I don't think it's a virtue... I think I'm lucky that I quite enjoy figuring things out. Oh, I have to get, I have to fix that or I have to repair that or what's an easier way to get that or that doesn't cost money. I I enjoy that little puzzle world. It doesn't, it doesn't make me emotionally, I mean, you know, there's some people who when it's cold, it makes them angry and upset and fearful. There's something about that that makes them, in the same way, some people, they look at their bank balance, it's not what they want it to be. There's a real fear that comes out of them, like a visceral, like a panic reaction. I don't have enough money, what am I going to do? I don't have that in my head, whatever that button is. Mum didn't really have it. I didn't have that fear. So I, being poor is, can be annoying, but it doesn't bother me. And also, I pass. I'm lucky. When I was in Cambridge, I was there on a scholarship. I, was, I had about two pounds a day to spend, but nobody knows that. The way that I speak, the way that I look, the way that I behave is all... It means I get a lot of the side benefits of being wealthy without actually having to have any, any of the money. Uh, I, I can move in certain society elements. I, can, I know how to dress or if I have to. So I don't get that thing that happens to people who are brought up in lower socioeconomic groups where they're constantly having to fight their way out of that box. I get, I get the assumption that I'm wealthy, which does quite a lot. A lot of being 
wealthy is not actually having money. It's the assumption that you're wealthy and the things that you get as a result. I can go and take my laptop and work in a five-star hotel lobby and no one will kick me out. Do you? Yes. <laughs> On the reg, it's a very nice place to work. <laughs> you know, nice toilets. Yeah. You know, often free Wi-Fi. It's fine. So. Nice place to take a meeting. Nice place to take a meeting. Yeah. Uh, I'm just downstairs at the Four Seasons. Come and meet me in the lobby. Come meet me in the lobby. We'll go to the cafe there. Easy. You're not, you're not telling a lie. No, no, there's no <laughs> lies. I don't. I try not to lie. It's one of the precepts. <laughs> yeah. What are they again? I will refrain from wrong speech. Yeah. Lying slander. Depends on how strictly you interpret it. Maybe swearing. Um, I will refrain from taking life. I'll refrain from taking what is not given. I will refrain from intoxicants and drugs which cloud the mind. I will refrain from sexual misconduct. Right. There's the five precepts basic i think i'm i'm pretty good there then yeah i remember suspending the drinking one when i was at chinrezi like wow you know <laughs> i'll drink when i get back yeah i should really really get back into it buddhism or yeah, drinking yeah, no 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 no. <laughs> no 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 i had to stop doing that six Too years good ago at it? Not drinking? Too good at it, drinking. Uh, no, I was terrible at it. Uh, it. It made bad things happen that I could no longer control. That's no yeah. good. No, uh, it was not good uh, because I was not in... I was not the person making the decisions. There was somebody else that lived inside me that would come out and make decisions that I then had to live with, and that was very difficult. Yeah. So I had to give it away. Uh, let me rephrase it. I got to give it away. I was very lucky that I had the opportunity to give it away. There's many uh, people that don't. Many people just keep going. They don't get the chance. No, they don't see. Well, some people don't have a problem mm. uh, with stopping. Uh, uh, my problem was that I couldn't stop. If I, if I started, I couldn't stop. And so I had to stop. Because exactly that, exactly. I would, uh, I would be overcome. It's just that full Jekyll Hyde thing. I would be overcome with this other that would say and do things that I would find, me sitting here in front of you, would find abhorrent. Mm. Abhorrent. But I would do them. Yeah. And say them. And then I would have to live with these choices. And it was, yeah. No life's, good. Life's better without it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'll me. never say, I never say never, but I, I haven't. So I don't know. I think it's probably too late for me to start drinking. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, uh, I wouldn't have any of the coping mechanisms that people have. So what does an alcohol-fueled social society look like from someone who's never drunk? <laughs> Pretty boring. Yeah. Uh, no, that's mean. It's not, no, it's not a, at all Because Cambridge seemed to run on beer. Yes, it did. I don't know. I have... Uh, there's a couple of ways that you deflect that. Either you don't draw attention to it because it's not a massive, like, it's not a philosophical position that I hold. It's just what I do. Uh, so I don't think other people shouldn't drink. Uh, so I don't, I don't need to take a stand for it. Um, and then also um, there's a particular face that you can do when people are asking you why you're not drinking that implies that uh, 
maybe you once did something incredibly regrettable <laughs> that means they won't ask any further or that you have like alcoholism in your family you don't have to say anything you just make this face when they offer you like oh I know I can't and they just don't ask again I think I again. do make that face yeah do yeah. you think you do it naturally I think I, I tend to make that face now yeah that's, you put it on Oh, yeah, it just stops the conversation. So it's great. It stops the conversation and people don't feel obliged to convince you to join them. Yeah, yeah, they do. They do. Uh, we are living in a world where more and more, yesterday I saw that Comcast, the massive, gigantic American uh, cable company, which owns Universal, which owns NBC, which just today bought DreamWorks Animation, Comcast uh, this week announced they're doing away with set-top boxes. Com- or your Fox top box, essentially. The cable plugs straight into the back of your smart TV, uh, comes down HTML5, so you don't even have to be on Comcast broadband to be a Comcast subscriber. So Whoa. we are living very rapidly into an age of independent digital broadcasting networks not being a thing anymore. Uh, you have your podcast, I have my podcast. What do you see for yourself in this new world of instead of doing 24 nights uh, at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival in a room of a few hundred people, which allows you to access maybe, I don't know, 5,000 people over the course of the month, being able to get that every five minutes, uh, you know, 50,000 people a day via some sort of fantastic internet protocol show that you create. I like that. What do you see for yourself there? All I've ever wanted to do is play with ideas. It's all I'm interested in. It's all I care about. And if I can figure out a way... Two Hercules are flying past the house. Just thought I'd point that out. Hercules the plane, not not the um, mythic no. Greek figure. Peter Garrett singing somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I would like to do this. To play with ideas. Play with ideas. And if I can figure out a way to do it um, and also not starve to death. That's all so That's I, the thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, over the next sort of, I guess, five years, I have to start thinking about whether I want to have kids. And if I do want that, I need to be in a position where I have control over where I go. So I have to do scalable things. I can't mm-hmm. tour with my shows, which is what I do now, which I love doing. But if I want to have a kid, then I need to at least have a base and and... I don't necessarily need to make that decision right this second, but if I make that decision, I don't want it to be because I have to. I don't want to be able to go, oh, I can't afford to do that with my life. Like, I can't... I would like it to be a decision that's Mm. as unaffected as possible by my, you know, job. So that's my goal, is to try and figure out a way to get, you know, more people listening to Tea with Alice, do another podcast that's probably a little bit more... Um, accessible Tea with Alice is just what I'm what happens when you give me a microphone and no brief at all I was hoping it would be funny but apparently it's just interesting Um, it's okay, interesting is fine it's fine sometimes I'm in the mood for an interesting podcast sometimes I'm in the mood for just uh, I just need something to giggle at the worst idea of all time it's where Guy Montgomery and Tim Batt who are two New Zealand comedians watch they have two seasons available at the moment. The first season is they watch Grown Ups 2 every week for a year and then do a review of it. And the second season is they watch Sex and the City 2 every week for a year. You don't watch them, you don't listen to the movie, you just listen to their commentary. 20 to 30 minute commentary afterwards. No, just their, their review of the, of the 
movie of these and it is like it's watching a it's watching the Stanford prison experiments but they're doing it to themselves basically it's you know this kind of complete losing of touch with reality with these two lovely very funny boys but if you want a dumb fun podcast it is that wow it's completely meaningless there's a movie coming about a Stanford prison experiment which I'm quite oh, excited about yeah. interesting yeah there's a really interesting cat Stanley Milgram Really interesting cat, the guy that uh, did that. Oh yeah. He's what did he, he write? Uh, the Devil Gene, the Devil's the Devil Within Us. Can't remember the latest book he wrote. It's really interesting. Um, I'm gonna turn off the machine. And, okay. And say thank you because oh. this has been so lovely to speak with you. Oh, thank Thanks you. Thanks for coming over. Thanks for having me. It's yeah. been really good. Oh, it's lovely. It's a lovely day. You came in. You brought me tea. Um, thanks heaps. Thanks. I'm just going to take your photo, okay? Oh, okay. Don't worry, you look beautiful. Thank you. All right, it takes, takes a very quick amount of time. All right, 125th of a second, to be honest. Oh, magic of photography. <laughs> that was Alice Fraser. You can find her on Twitter, alliterative, A-L-I-T-R-A-T-I-V-E. Let her know that you heard her on the show. If you like this show, you feel like you want to support it, uh, the least you could do is tell a friend. The most you could do is support the show on the Patreon page, patreon.com slash osher. It allows me to do things like hire Andy Marr, who's been producing the show for me and is doing a sensational job. I'm sure you'll agree. Um, I've got a split. I've got to get on a plane to Brisbane, despite the fact that there's somewhat of a hurricane uh, closing in on Sydney right now. So uh, we'll see how that works out. Until I talk to you next week, thank you so much for listening. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.